Last time we came together, we reviewed the first three chapters of the epistle to Ephesians that Paul wrote to understand how God's mystery has been hidden in ages past, but now has been, in this age, revealed to us. And we worked our way all the way up to chapter 321, which informs us what this epistle is about. It is about what God the Father is doing through Christ in the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to bring Him glory forever. And the first three chapters are entirely taken up with teaching. It's what you should know, what we should learn, what we need to comprehend, not merely with our minds, but with our hearts. What God the Father is doing through the Son in the church. And we need to know this. God's intent is for us to know this, because apart from that knowledge, we will fail to bring the degree of magnificent praise and glory that is due to Him. Particularly significant in this passage is almost a climactic verse in chapter 3, verse 10, where it is informing us that what God is doing is beyond our comprehension, and it is beyond what we actually recognize or can even see, because it is even the angelic host that we do not see what God is doing in all of His variegated, multifaceted way that they behold the wisdom of God and they see what God is doing as they observe the church. And these heavenly creatures are looking down upon us even now and they are forming an opinion. And they are moved to awe as they look at what God is doing in His church through Christ. Now our imaginations would have never conceived of this. Heaven is populated by hundreds of millions of these magnificent beings of which we have not seen. Some of them are unfallen, and a third of them are fallen. These are creatures of tremendous size, of towering intellect, far surpassing our own. And often when people come into the presence of an angel, and they were aware of it, it almost undid them. Like Daniel, when he was stricken down and lay on the floor... God intends that these creatures marvel. And they are familiar with 6,000 years of human history. They've seen it all, so to speak. So what could surprise them now? What could fill them with awe? In the counsel of God, there is a means by which those creatures are drawn spontaneously into never-ending awe in the wisdom and the power of God. People will come into our church and join as new visitors, and at first it's fresh and it's exciting. Some of those people, some of you, have been looking for a church like this for a long time. They begin to grow spiritually, and, but just wait 10 years. 
And then they too will be in the rut with the rest of us. And that will be the real test of their staying power. And part of passing that test is to get an enlarged concept of what we are about and what God is doing here through Christ. We aren't just repeating a daily routine or a weekly routine or an annual routine. There is something magnificent that God is doing in His church and doing here. And it is the intention of God that we will be linked to something far bigger than ourselves. He wants you to know that that is true, and He wants you to understand with your heart what He is doing in something far larger than ourselves. And once we get a concept of what is taking place here, we can start to live it out. And that's why He's given three chapters to help us to understand so that now he can begin to apply that to our lives, that it can live it out. And even in our time gathered here this morning, today, we either contribute to what God is doing here or we distract from it. We either contribute to the glorification of God through Christ or we detract from it. And the question is, what is God doing here? And what he's doing here is he's creating a body for his son through which he is glorified. And that body is simultaneously indwelt with the Holy Spirit so that that body for his son is the temple and the indwelling of the Spirit of God made up of organically living stones that are not only built upon each other, but intertwined and built within each other. They are ingrown stones. And the whole thing is just a marvel to the heavenly host. Just a marvel. And you consider how utterly sinful and self-centered and self-focused and how self-absorbed we are. And how people live and move for what they can have for themselves. And then you actually take a people like that and you lift them out of themselves and transform them and bind them together into one working unity to display the perfections of God. Now that will be an amazing thing. That would cause angels to marvel. And that is what the scriptures reveal what's going on here and what we are about. If God is going to get glory for himself, it demands something on the parts of the body itself. And as we will see in chapter 4, 5, and 6, this begins the second section of this epistle of the application of the teaching that he gave us in the first three chapters. And with that in mind, if you would stand with me, we will read now chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 through 16. He's going to begin with one word that is a word of conclusion. 
of which has just been revealed to us. Now read with me the word of God. I therefore, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first ascended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. As we come together around your word that has been given to your church in all generations, We pray you would send your spirit upon the preaching and the hearing of the word now, that the manner in which we do so would bring you glory. That would be something that would add to it and expand to your glory and not detract from it, to be a contributor. Our Father, I pray as the minister who must now preach, that you would divest me of all of myself, And fill me with the Spirit of God and empower me freshly with Him to proclaim Your Word and to do so with power in the Spirit to bring forth even the minister's joy. As Paul exhorted the Philippians in chapter 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And as he prayed that for the Philippians and exhorted them to, he saw himself as a drink offering poured out 
so that their joy might be full in Christ. And so, Lord, this day, I pray that the joy of Christ would be fulfilled in us all as you knit us together in love and build up this body in the unity that you would please you in the bond of peace to apply the very truth of what we are as a church, as a building, as the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ. We pray now that you would convict us of our sins where we have fallen short. Bring repentance where it is necessary. Bring joy in the encouragement to the contributors. And we pray whatever the needed application is, that your Spirit would bring it forth in our lives in power and fruitfulness to glorify your holy name. We pray for this application to be given to us individually as well as us corporately to the glory of our Father through Christ Jesus in the Spirit in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This passage begins the entire section, not just the passage that's before us, but therefore, I therefore, Paul says, and he begins to conclude And he then exhorts us in this passage that we would walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. As we will see, this chapter 4, 5, and 6 are divided up into several sections which are not just arbitrary for us to consider, but are delineated by the term walk, to walk. And as he began this particular passage for us, he exhorts us to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. That calling is God's elective calling that He has given to each one of us in Christ and saving us and putting us in the body of Christ, not only in a local body, but this eternal and universal body. Now there is therefore a walk that we have as a body. That's what bodies do. They walk. You can tell a lot about somebody by the way they walk, whether they walk with a swag and confidence, or perhaps with a stamina, or even perhaps maybe with a listless and despondent manner, you can tell something about the way somebody walks. But actually the walking here is just a figure for our entire way of living, how we live this whole matter out. And the point of this is that bodies don't just move around from place to place, but they live this purpose and identity out. It's not that the angels are just watching the church move, but they are observing a lifestyle, a character, a conduct, an attitude, a spirit, a conversation, a demeanor. And obviously, more significant, the person or an institution, no matter what his station or his name or possibly even his nobility of that person, we expect a particular kind of walk for that person according to their station in life or the institution by which they are identified with. 
We have certain expectations for certain kinds of people. Right now, the royals are in much of the news lately around the death of Queen Elizabeth and the now immediate rise of King Charles III. And the public expects a complementary walk with these royals in the positions that they hold and the titles that they bear, which is fitting for the institution that they represent. The way that they live their lives not only reveals their character, but it reflects upon the institution and the country that they represent. That's why there's a lot of controversy on some of these matters. When a person of a high station in life does not walk or conduct themselves complementary to their role and to what they've been called to, it is demeaning to the reputation of the person, but it also calls into question the integrity of the entire institution that they represent or are identified with. So there's a certain expectation of the behavior of people in certain stations of life, particularly of noble institutions, that's according to their calling. And this is especially true of Christians in the church. How we walk, how we live our lives is important to God. Because it reflects upon his church, and in turn, that reflects upon Christ, and in turn, that reflects upon God the Father. That walk will either distract or detract from, or it will contribute to and enhance the glory of God. Now, the magnificent thing that God is doing, he demands our complementary walk that complements the very thing that he is doing. And that's where the exhortation begins. And this is what is described for us in chapter 4, 5, and 6 of this chapter on how we, the church, are to live and how to walk. If that walk is going to call attention to God, then those things in which we do will be supernatural. If it's going to cause attention to the extent that angelic beings will marvel and that the world will see that we are followers of Christ, it will be a supernatural work. There is no possibility that a natural walk, apart from God's supernatural power, is going to impress heavenly beings. So what is urged upon us in these chapters, 4, 5, and 6, is so grand that even heavenly beings who have been observing for 6,000 years will stand in awe and say, that was God. That was divine power. That was evidence of something of a God. So when we read these chapters, we should not expect this to be an easy walk. It will call out of us all of the spirituality to which we can attain as believing people. It will demand of us things that we cannot accomplish in our flesh, that will be quite impossible to achieve naturally, 
but will be able to achieve supernaturally by the grace of God and the filling of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul, back in chapter 1, wanted us to know with five different words the power of God through the Spirit, which has been given unto you, which raised Christ from the dead. That power is now given to you to live and to walk this thing out. So that even angelic beings, far more powerful and intelligent than we are, will marvel will marvel at what God is doing. See, this is about God. This is about God. So what is that walk that displays God's glory to heavenly creatures? The chapter is, five, 4, 5, and 6 are divided up in such a way that it calls attention to the way that we walk. And the first manner of walking here is the Christian walk in the church to glorify God. So he's going to first talk about the sphere of inside. Right here, you and me, the brethren, what we call the church. And this is our walk to the extent of living out our lives with one another in the church. Right here. It's very personal, very local, very applicable to us today. So the call to walk together is a call to unity. Verses 1 through 3. Now he's going somewhere in verse 2. He says, with lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. He conditions the entire walk with a particular manner, a spirit that must be true. With humility and lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, with love. And why does he go there? Why does he impress this upon us before he even gets to where he's going? Because he is going somewhere with that, and where he's going with that will not be possible without first going in this kind of manner, without living in this kind of spirit, because it is God who gives grace to the humble. He then speaks in verse 3, this is where he's going, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Out of all the chapters, one through three, he begins here. This is his first and foremost and the very preeminent application that he begins to share with us. We walk in this unity, endeavoring to keep this unity in the bond of peace to the glory of God. This word endeavoring means, or it's a characteristic of an athlete with a well-trained body. And this word unity has to do with even a coordination or an agility, this, this incredible dexterity. We're talking here about a body that works together in harmony, working together in a, a, a fluidity. And the first thing that God impresses on us is the necessity of unity in order to achieve His divine design for us as the church. That unity is created by the Spirit of God. Objectively, that unity is already here. Because the moment you are baptized into the church, you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are immersed in the Spirit, and that Spirit creates the unity. 
So as we see the first call is a call on unity, we see secondly in the same passage there the basis for that unity in chapter or in verses 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. That's the basis. And the basis of that unity is a very critical thing. And we need to understand that. He goes on and, and expounds on that throughout this passage. But in verse 13, he speaks of this until we all come to the unity of the faith. So what is the unity that binds us together? It's the unity of the truth, of the truth, the truth of God. He's talking in the unity of faith about what we believe. The unity of the Christian faith is the basis for our commonality, for our un unity together. It's essential for us to understand because people accuse the church of being so fractured and divided in so many sections. Whether we're talking about different branches of the church or the multi-denominations that are in existence, there is a division. But how are we to look at that even in our own local body and local church? If we were to all gather as the entirety of the church whether all of these sects and divisions and these schisms, and we would just all kind of get together, and we call that unified, there is something very superficial and artificial about that. Unity for the sake of unity and the expense of truth is not true unity. All that kind of unity does is it, it really masks, really, the, the deep problems that exist between people who come in the name of Christ. And even in a local church, as we gather together in the name of Christ, and we are to be one in Christ in this way, it is the truth. It is the truth of what we believe and what the Scripture dogmatically teaches that will be that unifying power. So when, in fact, there is a tremendous chasm between some groups even though they may all name the name of Christ, there is no true biblical unity if it is not unified on the truth. So that if one group believes in Jesus as the Messiah, but yet they do not believe in His deity, there is no unity with that. Or if some person if we believe that the Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead, but another person believes that he is merely just a force, there is no unity in that. The only thing that will bring unity to these people is when they are united in the truth. The central core dogma, the central beliefs of the Christian faith as have been revealed to the Christian church. And apart from that, you don't have unity. You have a superficiality, an artificiality, a false impression. And the same application exists for local churches among members. We come in the unity of the truth. 
We have unity when we can agree together on the core biblical doctrines of the Scripture, including the very doctrine that we are discussing right here. Well, how is the church supposed to achieve that since we're all at different levels of knowledge? There is a divergence of opinion out there, but God has addressed that in this very passage as he says in, in verse 11 that he has given gifts to the church for this very purpose. And there he then communicates to us that there are five, four or five, depending on how you understand that, categories of communicators of the truth, ministers of the truth. And that's the whole point in mentioning these men and these particular gifts in this context. So right out of the gate, he gives us these four or five categories of ministers of the truth. These are men that are fit for the task in order to perfect the saints and to equip them for the work of the ministry so that they can grow up to be one new body, not blown about by every wind of doctrine, but they might grow together in the unity of the faith. And wherever that's taking place, those ministers of the truth must expose error. This is the office of the Christian minister. And the office of the Christian minister, and in part his responsibility, is not only to promote the truth to God's people, but it is also to expose the error and not minimize error in any way. It is to root it out. It is to expel it from God's people, from their minds and from their hearts, like, like he's weeding out a garden. And that's part of the minister's responsibility. Because it is only through the exposing and the picking out of the weeds of error out of the minds and hearts of God's people and promoting the truth of God, that unity is that which is a result and fruit. So in order to be unified in the truth, we have to get the errors out of our minds and hearts. And it's the response of those men who communicate truth to stand and to be dogmatic about what the Scripture teaches, to promote the biblical truth and expose biblical error, and do it with the authority which the Scripture gives him to do so. So to fulfill our calling, it addresses a manner of living, a, a walking a certain way. It, that walking is conducive to the glorification of God, and that walk begins in a certain spirit, one with humility, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We see the basis of that. And now in this third section of this passage, we see it addressing a fulfilling calling to each one of us. So he now turns from a corporate aspect of this oneness and unity to how it addresses each one of us specifically as he addresses it and begins in verse 7. But to each one of us, he says, each one of us. Now he's speaking to you personally, to me. And he's saying to keep not only the unity 
but do so by enhancing that unity through a diversity of spiritual gifts. This section addresses a multifaceted diversity of gifts within the body. And if you're sleeping, this is a time to wake up. This is a very important passage of Scripture. And we need to understand what this supernatural thing is that the Spirit is doing for the glorification of God. In verse 7 through 12, what Paul is doing through the Spirit is he is describing to us the nature of the ministry in a local church that actually enhances the unity through diversity. And what he's addressing here in this section is that which we call spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. The very nature of the passage here, without going into too much detail, is that which shows that it's Christ who gives the gifts. It's He who descended down into the lower parts of the earth, who ascended up on high. It is that Christ, quoting out of Psalm 68, now identifying it with Christ as he won the victory, ascends back on high, sends gifts to men. It is those gifts that have been given to each one individually of which the Spirit now wants us to understand how this works in unity. Now I think we need to take just a brief moment to try to understand what is a spiritual gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, the Scripture says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. He begins that section in verse 1 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians where he says, Now, I don't want you to be ignorant of spirituals. Some of your translation has spiritual gifts, but the word gift is not there. Spirituals. So first of all, um, a spiritual gift, according to verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 12, is a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Now just get that as point number one. A manifestation of the Spirit of God. When that gift is exercised, the Spirit is manifested. And that's the point. The Spirit is doing it all, but He's using a human agent to do so. It is a ministry ability where the Spirit of God Himself is manifested. It's supernatural ministry ability. This is not natural. In addition to that, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, And as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now that informs us when a spiritual gift is exercised through a person which manifests the Spirit of God, it be, that person becomes a channel through which grace is then administered to others. We become channels of grace to one another. That's why living in Christian community and living in the church and serving with our gifts is a very important matter for us to consider. So a definition of a spiritual gift can be defined as this. A believer's ministry ability through which the Spirit manifests himself in ministering God's grace unto the edification of the body, ultimately for the glorification of God. That's a spiritual gift. 
It's a mouthful, but it's a spiritual gift. But here's where we need to, to be careful. We need to understand the difference in a spiritual gift and a talent. Because they are different. For instance, in the, in the realm of several categories, let's say, for instance, music. Someone can have great musical ability, someone can have a great musical talent, but that doesn't necessarily mean that person can minister that spiritually. A person can play something magnificent and to perfection even, and it might even be a hymn, but it did not move people upward toward God as a spiritual manifestation of the Spirit working in that. Now that does not reflect on the spirituality of the person. He may be an equal with everybody else in terms of his spirit, but that is not his gift. See, There may be someone who might be less talented musically, but who can maybe move people more spiritually upward to God, and it might be their gift. See, to be a gift, it is a supernatural manifestation of the Spirit that ministers grace to people and draws their attention to God in a supernatural way. That's the difference, perhaps maybe in music. Even in leadership is another category. One may have a great talent for leadership. One may be a good manager of people. He may do well in the corporate or secular world in this area, but that person doesn't have a supernatural endowment of the Spirit to build up people in the church. Again, not necessarily reflecting it all in his spirituality, but there is a difference between a talent and a spiritual gift. And that's really important for us to discern in order to endeavor for the unity in the body. What about teaching? There can be a number of fantastic Christian teachers that do really well in the secular world. But if he does not possess the gift of teaching in the church, he will not move people toward God or edify the body in a supernatural way. Or perhaps maybe there's one who has a great talent in making money. Maybe he even gives money. Maybe he even contributes large amounts of money to the church. But he, that does not mean he has the gift of giving. People who have the gift of giving have a, a special knack of what people need. It's not necessarily even money and financial giving that's referred to here. But that, they know that need and they, they go to give in a way that meets that needs person in a way that is supernatural. It builds up, it edifies. So we often measure spiritual gifts in wrong terms. We often think about them as super, um, super talents, if you will. That's not the way we should think about them at all. There are four ways in which talents differ from spiritual gifts. Number one is how they are given. Talents are given immediately. They're giving through either parents or even perhaps by hereditary or even through learning or skills that were gained. But talents are given 
immediately, through some mediation. Whereas a spiritual gift is given immediately, without mediation that way, by the Spirit himself. Number two, the difference between a talent and a, spirit, and a spiritual gift is when they are given. Uh, a talent is often given, it can be from birth even. People can be born with special endowments of what we tend to use as we call gifts, but they're not in the same way that we're talking about spiritual gifts. But a gift is given when that individual is placed within the body of Christ. When he is baptized, the Spirit of God then positions him within that body as a member within that body. And what is common to both a talent and a spiritual gift, most must be developed Both of them must be developed, but they are distinctly different. A third difference between a talent and a gift is to whom they are given. Talents are given to all sorts of people, even to unbelievers. They're given to people that are unregenerate, and yet gifts are given to Christians within the context of the body of Christ, the church. Number four regarding their purpose. A talent is given because the person is made in the image of God and there is a good on the natural level that that talent is intended for. Granted, unbelievers abuse these kinds of things in all kinds of ways, but a talent is intended in the image of God to reflect upon something and to do good on a natural level. But a gift is given for the edification of the body of Christ on a supernatural level. And the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive. You may have someone that has gained a great talent in music who also God uses then to be supernaturally edifying to the church of Jesus Christ. But it is important to differentiate a talent from a gift, because oftentimes you will have people who insist that the body of Christ allow them to do certain things because I can play an instrument or I can do a certain thing or I can teach well or I can run a business or I can do good works. And while there are a number of people who can do these kinds of things, if they do not have the spiritual gift in these areas, they will not spiritually edify the body of Christ which means to build it up. So there's a lack somewhere. It's not necessarily on the person's spirituality. Let's be real clear about that. But there's something extra that isn't merely human that's involved. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual endowment. Now there are two things in the body of Christ which makes us different from one another here. And both of those factors are factors of diversity which are sovereignly administered. And for the unity of the body, God has established, divinely so, a diversity that works in a harmony. It's like a a choir that sings soprano, alto, tenor, bass. There's a harmony among that diversity that is enhances the unity and enhances the glory of the voice of the choir. And so it is in the church. The things that makes us different are not just those who sing soprano, alto, titter, and bass, though that is somewhat true. 
The two factors spiritually given to the church are these. Number one, it is God that gives the diversity of the gifts that make up the diversity of the body. That is intentional. That is divinely designed and appointed. It is God that gives the gifts according to his sovereign will. He says in Ephesians 4, 7, But to each one of us this grace has been given by Christ to his church, to each one of us. In other words, we don't have any choices about the choice of the gifts that we have. That choice has been taken away from us. It has been predetermined. You have been born in a certain time, in a certain place, have been united together in a certain body, and have been endowed with a spirit to do something bigger than any of us actually understand. And as you then minister your gift, as he has put you into the body of Christ... That is what will build up the body of Christ, not only locally, but worldwide and universally so. And this is out of my hands. It's by God's sovereign choice. And that's one of the things that makes up the diversity in the body of Christ. It's something that God designed. And as we live in harmony with our diversity, it actually enhances the glory through that unity. The second thing that then makes us distinguished from one another is that it is God that then gives the measure of these gifts to each one as he wills. If you notice with me in verse 7, but to each one of us this grace is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now even if two people have exactly the same gift, they do not have necessarily the same measure of that gift. That's also divinely intended and sovereignly administered. We see this with Peter and John. Anytime those two guys are together, Peter speaks. It's not like John didn't have anything to say. He wrote an entire gospel and three epistles. He wrote more than Peter did. But anytime we see them together, it's Peter that's speaking. We see this with Paul and Barnabas. Paul was an exhorter. He was a teacher. He was an encourager. When we see those two together... It's Paul that's speaking. There was a difference in the measure, see, that God gave by design that Peter would be the chief spokesman, that Paul would be that who was to speak more. And this is the nature of the diversity of the gifts within the body. Not only has God sovereignly appointed to each one of us a gift, but he has also given us a measure of that gift so that it works in a harmony with each other in the body. And he determines this. And the question is, why is it important? Why are you going on about this? Why is it so important for us to understand all of these things? How does that build up our unity? How does that enhance things? And let me give you four points on that. Number one, it's important to understand this because it humbles an exceptionally gifted person in the church. Going back to verse 2, in order to make sure that, that those gifts are to edify, there must be a humility and a gentleness, a lowliness of mind and love. But it humbles an exceptionally gifted person. 
Again, we see the contrast with the Corinthian church. For he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who makes you to differ from one another? Implication, God does. And what do you have that you did not receive? Uh, Implication, I don't have anything that I have not been given as a gift by God. Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Now, if you did not receive this gift, see, why are you boasting in your flesh? You don't have anything that is of any good unless it has been given to you by God. And if you have been given to it by God, you have no reason to boast. So there is a humility that is intended in us understanding the importance of these gifts. God is the author He is the administrator. He is the one who works through these things for his glory and the edification of the body. And none of us have any right to boast. Number two, it encourages those who are less generously gifted. And this is what Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians, that they have to understand that sometimes God honors the the less honorable gift more than he does the more explicit gift. God has set the the, the members in the body just as he pleased. And and what you are called to do, what I'm called to do, is be a good steward of the measure to which he has given you in that gift. And when it comes down to it, you would rather be less generously endowed person and give yourself faithfully to that than to spend your life chasing gifts that you don't have and being faithful to nothing. So one of the reasons it is encouraging here is because even those with the less generous endowment of gifts in the lesser measure can be faithful to these things and find great, not only contentment, but find that God can use him in his faithful position in a tremendous way, the likes of which you cannot even imagine or think. Number three. The reason it's important to understand this is because it rebukes ambitious people. The Corinthians were ambitious people. They were ambitious to speak in tongues. They were fighting over the gifts, and they were ambitious in a way that were tripping over themselves and causing great disunity in the body of Christ. And the reason it's important to understand the nature and the the sovereignly administered endowment of the spiritual gifts and their purpose within the body, how to function and how to operate, is so it will hinder ambitious people in a manner that gives glory to God and keeps us all in check finding great contentment in our humility to serve where God has placed us in the body. And number four, it really determines ministerial concentration. In other words, what we need to be asking is, what did the Lord give to me of which I need to concentrate on? He has given to each one of us, each one of you, a spiritual gift. Now, what is that gift, and where do I need to concentrate on that to the edification of the body, to the glory of God the Father? At this point, I'm going to quote another pastor. I'm going to quote another pastor who's older than I am, who's got far more experience than I am, but he shares a common problem in the church. And the reason I'm quoting him is because I don't want anybody here thinking I am aiming at them. This is a common and general problem in the church, and it always has been. 
And I'm not bringing out any particulars or specifics here. I'm merely bringing out a general problem. And the question that you're going to have to wrestle with is, what is the application for me? He says this, quote, When there comes these inevitable shoves because wrong expectation or of opposition or comparison with other ministries or church tradition or financial pressure, when there come these shoves that not particularly church leadership out of the path of their giftedness, there needs to be a ministerial concentration that brings them back because Christ made this choice. And failing to do that is failing to edify the body as he intended. We need to understand where we are to concentrate in the body according to the gift that he has given to us all. So then Paul concludes this entire section in verse 16, which says, Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. And what he's saying here in the conclusion of this matter is that as we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in all lowliness and gentleness and in love, and as we then live out our appointment in life, stationed in the church according to Christ's appointment, according to the measure that he has given to each one of us, we are to find in that diversity the unity in how we are to fit together and minister with that spiritual gift which is a manifestation of the Spirit, that the holy angels will look upon us and marvel because we are just intergrown as a body, as Paul says, and these ligaments and these joints and these, all of these things are just fit together so that this bone fits in this bone, held together with ligaments and muscles pull it and contract and, and it just moves fluidly and, and without a problem and with great ease. And the body that we enjoy which has movement and sight and sound and works together in harmony. He says, this is the church. This is how we need to operate so that the angelic beings will marvel at the glory of God in taking a disunited kind of people, a people self-focused and self-centered that always wants to appease themselves, and he transports them out of that oldness and puts them into a new body in Christ, transforming their hearts in the gospel and now putting them into a new purpose and a new life so that they fit together in a ease in a, a coordinated, in a manner of unity while doing all their different parts. And they do it in the bond of love, in the bond of peace, to the absolute marvel of angelic beings who have never seen that for 6,000 years. And he has been doing it now for 2,000. So when everybody is doing their divinely appointed part, exercising their spiritual gifts in the body, that supernatural manifestation that is different from a talent, 
empowered by the Spirit of God, and ministers grace to others to build them up. The body of Christ as a whole grows. That's the church growth model. It happens from within before it happens without. And that diversity working in concert, building this great unity and love and edification of one another in the Spirit will cause angels and men alike to marvel to the glory of God the Father through Christ empowered by the Spirit. That's what God's doing here. These heavenly intelligence are looking down upon fallen creatures they know by nature are selfish, self-seeking, jealous, self-centered, selfish with their time and resources, insubordinate, autonomous, individualistic. And now they're seeing a people serve in a way that is selfless, unified, covenantal, united, and working in harmony. And they marvel. And that achieves the design that God intends. Life is very short. Lord, teach us to number our days that we might live them in wisdom. 70 years, 80 perhaps for strength. In a few short years, you're going to look back with either tremendous regret or with a great degree of confidence when you go into the presence of God and you give an account that you gave yourself selflessly when you tried to achieve His design for His church. Now the big thing here is not Serving one another. That's on the way to the big thing. The big thing here is calling attention to God. And that will be our chief sin when we're in His presence. Not that we didn't contribute something to other people, but that we failed to give glory to God and drawing attention to Him. When our lives were not primarily spent on enhancing God's glory, but diminishing it, albeit oftentimes unwittingly and not knowing, it will be a disappointment. You have been saved by the grace of God. You have been gifted by the Lord. And you have an ability, supernaturally, that has been endowed to you particularly, to call attention to God. To call attention to God. And your gift, employed in this body, will call me to call attention to God. And done faithfully, it will be a supernatural work, not something that you can do naturally. And every one of you have been given that. And that comes 
and is enhanced when we stay united. And that unity is, is, is further enhanced when we all come from these diversities where we're different from one another, but we all fit in the body where every joint and ligament does its share to the growth of the body and the growth of itself, growing up of itself in love. So as he began in verse 1, walk worthy of your calling with which you have been called. First, do so here in the context of the church. In humility, being unified among the great diversities that you share, serving the body with your spiritual gifts to grow it and to grow the body up in love with the intent, with your motive and your primary intention to glorify God. First and foremost, to glorify God. So that even the angels themselves marvel and learn of the manifold, multifaceted, variegated wisdom of God by what they observe going on here. That is who we are. We're the church. Is what God is doing God the Father doing through Christ in the church, empowered by the Spirit, for His glory forever. And that is who we are, and that is what we are about, and that's what we are to do. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the faith and the bond of peace. Let's pray. Our Father, as we consider this first application of the church and this great mystery that has now been revealed to us, of which we are a part You have endowed us each with a spiritual gift which will manifest the supernatural power of the Spirit as we exercise these gifts. And they will be to the edification and the building up of the body of Christ. With great diversity in the body, there is a unity that works all together in this singleness, in this body. As we come together around this table that we call communion, may it be so among each one of us here this morning. We pray the Spirit of God would square us up with the truth that if we are out of the square and out of the plumb line of the Scripture, that you would now square us up. That we would run true and the building would be built straight into the glory of God the Father, through Christ, empowered by the Spirit. Lord, we desire to do your will and to glorify your holy name. That is our design, that is our purpose, that is our motive. And we ask that you would square us up with these things, to be faithful in the place that you've put us in this body and to one another, and that we would love one another. We would know what that means. And we would live it out, walk it out as the body of Christ faithfully in the time and the place that you've given us to do so. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. Amen.